Thank you for listening to the Soul City Church podcast. Be sure to follow us on our Facebook and Instagram at Soul City Church. For more information, visit us on our website, soulcitychurch.com. Soul City Church, good morning. All right, yes, welcome. Yeah, that's really cool. That was really fun. Well, I'm so glad that you all are here, whether you're here in this room or worshiping with us online, or maybe you're one of the folks that listens a little bit later on the podcast, or you're watching this message in several months, you know, on YouTube. However you're engaging with us, we're just, like Kelly said, we're so glad that you're here with people. We're so glad that you're a part of our church. Our prayer is that, you know, the time that you've carved out, the time that you've invested in here today, that it would prove to be meaningful for you that I actually believe it might actually prove to be transformative for you, transformative for your relationships, for your faith, for, for your life in general. That, that's what we have the opportunity to encounter here this morning. And if we haven't met yet, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. And all this month and beyond, but specifically this month, we as a church, we want to be really intentional about honoring and celebrating the vast breadth and beauty of black history, both in our country, that's right, and, and right here in our city. And you know, some of you, some of you might know this uh, about me, in addition to being a pastor here and having the privilege of teaching you on Sunday from time to time, I also have the privilege of leading our creative team here at the church. And so today I thought it might be appropriate to honor some work throughout black history, both in the creative space and in the pastoral space, and to highlight a moment where the two overlapped. So to start in the creative space, I wanna talk about the work of an absolute genius, Gordon Parks. So Gordon Parks was one of the most innovative and trailblazing and provocative photographers of the 20th century. If you don't know who Parks is, believe me, you know his work because his photos were a driving force behind the civil rights movement as they depicted not only the struggle of the black experience through the 1950s and 60s, but also the beauty and the power of the black experience. Parks was the first black photographer and reporter for Life magazine, and because of that, he often traveled for his work, and one of his absolute favorite cities to travel to, obviously, was the city of Chicago, obviously. And on a trip here in 1953, when he was working on a story for life, he captured this very famous photo of the Reverend Pastor E.F. Ledbetter. Uh, Ledbetter was a pastor at Metropolitan Missionary Baptist Church, kind of near here on the near west side. Ledbetter was a vibrant and passionate preacher in the pulpit. He was the first of three generations of Chicago pastors. His grandson is still pastoring in the Bronzeville neighborhood today. And believe me, listen to one of his sermons this week. Pastor Ledbetter III can preach just like his grandfather could. But what really stuck out to Parks during his work with Ledbetter was Ledbetter Sr.'s commitment to spending hours upon hours each day sitting with and praying with members of his congregation He lovingly pastored them through how to deal with the subjugation and the mistreatment that many of them had to walk through on a daily basis. That's actually what Ledbetter was best known for. Now, not surprisingly, Life magazine decided to not run the story, but it was released years later, and in it, Parks describes Ledbetter's church, and I wanted to read just a short segment of it for you. He describes the church like this. It was a haven in a world of unending trouble, to thousands of black voices that cry out within its porcelain brick walls 
it is a great home in the wilderness. And that's what the church can be. That's what the church has the power to do. That's what I pray our church would be, especially for our brothers and sisters of color. And so would you join me in honoring two legends, the legacies of both Gordon Parks and Reverend E.F. Ledbetter. Yeah. Now, I'm really curious as to some of your answers to the question that Kelly just asked you earlier about how much sleep you get in a given night. So I thought it would be okay, uh, just because some of you look a little tired. I thought it would be, uh, no offense, I thought it would be okay if we took like just a little informal poll, if that's all right. So raise your hand if you get a full eight hours of sleep every night, maybe more. Wow. Oh, wow. Look, a few of you. Very good. How many of you are like seven? Seven's my number. Yeah. Others of you, maybe six. You're like, that's me. I'm right now. At least I'm like six. Good. Okay. Here's, here's the moment of confession. Don't lie. You're in church. How many of you are like five hours or less for me every single night? Yeah. Yeah. There's some of you. Good. Okay. Okay. Not bad. All right. Now, all this tells me, you know, the CDC, I don't know if you know this, the CDC recommends that an adult should have an average of eight full hours of sleep or more per night. So all that poll tells me is that most of y'all are not making it through this sermon. Like, you are going to fall asleep on me while I'm up here. So to avoid that, here's what I want you to do. I want everyone in this room to stand up. I'm not joking. Just stand up for me. We're going to shake it out a little bit. We're going to get the blood flowing. Okay, it's going to feel really good. So here's what I want you to do. I just want you to take both your hands. Just put them in. Put them forward. Yeah, stretch it out. Feel that stretch in the back. Yeah. Now take both your hands. Put them back. Put them out towards the back of the room. Maybe link them together. Feel that stretch. Yeah. Okay, put both your hands in again. Yep. In. Yeah, shake them. Shake them all about. Here we go. Yes. Okay. Now hands in the air and just do a full turnaround. Just a full 360. Oh, turn yourself around. Yes. Very good. Very good. All right. You can have a seat. You can have a seat. Man. Whew. Doesn't that feel so much better? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. I have, a, I have to make a confession. All right. So um, I did not have you get up and stretch because I thought you looked tired. Um, there's a story behind this, and, and I just, I was convicted, I, I have to tell you. Uh, so earlier this week, Pastor Jarrett, one of our lead pastors, and I, we were texting about this message, and the conversation took a turn that I was not expecting, and he had a little request for me. I thought I, thought I could just read the text for you all. Here it is. So, this is Jarrett texting me, hey! <laughs> I know you're busy studying slash writing, but I had a thought. You're getting a little soft, okay? And I want to raise the stakes on this message for you. I'll bet you a whole entire Portillo's chocolate cake that you can't get Soul City Church to do the hokey pokey this weekend. I know, that's why we're in, out, in, shake it all about. Yeah, so I'm sorry, I know, I betrayed your trust. Jarrett, you're watching online. You owe me. You owe me. I expect a cake on my desk tomorrow. (laughs) Now, obviously, obviously, I'm just joking. I would never do that to you. I do this all to prove a point. And the point is this. That feeling that you just felt, even if it was kind of funny for you, that feeling of kind of being manipulated in order to serve someone else's selfish desires. You ever felt that way in a relationship? Yeah, like you thought I was up here because I care about you all. (laughs) 
You thought I was up here to serve you and to love you and to teach you. That's what you thought this relationship was about. But in that moment, you realize it was really all about me kind of playing a little game, right? Have you ever felt that way in a relationship? For those who are not nodding their heads yet, let me give you an example. You ever wake up one day and realize, oh, he never actually wanted to be with me. He just wanted to use me so he didn't have to be alone. That type of thing. Any of you have a friend who kind of always like belittles you or maybe a sibling who talks down to you to make themselves feel big. And so they kind of use your lack of money or your lack of relationship or your lack of children in order to make themselves feel better about their own discontentment. Or maybe at your work, it doesn't really feel like you and your coworkers work to serve the customer. You work to serve your boss's ego, maybe. And, and you know, this, this person, they're probably not doing this consciously. At least I would hope they're not necessarily being intentionally manipulative. But it's very clear that for them, the relationship is primarily about their own needs. And maybe you take a step back one day and you say to yourself, I feel used. You ever, you ever experience this? You ever, you ever feel that way where you realize, I don't think I'm a person to this person. Yeah, let's talk about it. Why not? Like they just want to use, they just want to use something that I have for their own selfish gain. They, they just want to use my skill. All they want is my connections or they just want to use my body. They just want to use my race to check a box. They don't actually care about me. They only care what I can do or be for them. I think to some degree, some of us more than others have felt this in relationship. And if you've been here all this month, you know we're walking through this series called Red Flags, where we're looking at those things that sabotage healthy relationships and how we can hopefully avoid those pitfalls through the wisdom and grace of God. And we're doing this actually by examining some Bible stories as examples or case studies, not of what healthy relationships look like, but in a counterintuitive way, we're actually looking at the Bible for examples of what these unhealthy red flag riddled relationships can be like. You see, one of, one of the things that I think is just so cool about the Bible is how multifaceted it is. And there are certain stories or certain sections of the Bible that are meant to be more prescriptive or prescriptive for us, meaning that those stories or those sections are there to teach us what we should do or how we should live. But you ever read through the Bible and come across something and think to yourself, I don't think I'm supposed to follow that word for word. You ever read one of those stories? Chances are you are encountering a story that is meant to be more descriptive where rather than teaching us what to do, these stories are used to describe what humans tend to do. They're meant to hold up a mirror to the messiness that sometimes is the human condition. And today, we're actually going to look at one of those descriptive stories in the Old Testament that is describing the red flag of selfishness. Now, this is a red flag that exists in a lot of different relationships. And if we're totally honest, this is a red flag that exists to some degree, in every human heart. And if we're not careful, if we become unintentional, we can just sort of drift towards selfishness. We see it in other people, and we see it in ourselves. And if we're not careful, and we allow that drift to happen, again, knowingly or unknowingly, when selfishness creeps in, it can actually ruin our relationships. 
So if you are in this room, I want you to look under the seat in front of you, grab one of those really cool multifaceted Bibles, and you're going to turn it to page 247, page 247 in the Soul City Bible. That's where you will find 2 Samuel chapter 11. Those of you worshiping with us online, grab your own Bible. I got mine. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 11. As I just said, we are going to be looking at a pretty famous story in the Old Testament. Some of you maybe have heard it. You might at least be familiar with some of the characters because we're looking at a pretty famous relationship here. And I'm going to kind of read it through kind of slowly. And as I read these first few verses, my challenge to you is really focus in and see if you notice any red flags at all in these first few verses. Just see if you can get real specific and notice any at all. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, what's the next word? David. David. There he is. David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is who? Bathsheba. She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. Any red flags pop out to anybody? Like one or two, maybe? Now, I I don't mean to make light of it, because obviously what is happening in this story, it, it is obviously very, very serious. And I don't know if this has been your experience, but traditionally in the church, at least in the tradition I grew up in, this story of David and Bathsheba traditionally has been used in sermons and books that discuss the danger of affairs, affairs within marriage. And that's not a complete misrepresentation of this story. David is married at this point, so is Bathsheba, obviously, to Uriah. But but some teachers and church leaders over the years have represented this story as an ongoing illicit affair between two consenting adults. Others even go as far as to blame Bathsheba, saying that she's the one who is really, or at least equally to blame, because what was she doing out bathing naked in the open on the roof? I just want to give a little PSA announcement right now. Make sure to read your Bibles carefully, kids. The story never says that she was bathing on the roof. If you read it carefully, the story actually says that it was David who was walking on his roof who peeped inside of her window and saw her cleansing herself. You see, there are several reasons why the author includes those parentheses that made some of you a little bit uncomfortable. I'll just say, maybe get over it a little bit. When it's talking about her monthly uncleanliness, and one of the reasons that the author includes that is so that we as readers can infer that Bathsheba's bathing in this story is actually her doing a ritual cleansing of herself as an act of faithfulness to God. This is what they did in the Old Testament. And so while she is performing an act of faithfulness to her God, David uses his position of power and her position of vulnerability in order to get what he wants from her. That's what actually is happening in this story. And there's another really interesting observation that a lot of scholars have made over the years. 
Did you notice that David never actually uses her name? In fact, Bathsheba is only named once in the entire story. It's by David's servant. After that, for the rest of the story, she is only referred to as the woman, she, or Uriah's wife. And again, that is also purposeful from the author because the author is trying to show you that for David, thanks to his selfishness, Bathsheba has lost her humanity. She's no longer a person to him. She is only an object that he can use to fulfill something that he wants. And it's really easy (laughs) to kind of stand up here and look down on David for this. But how often does this red flag pop up in our culture? How often does this pop up in our own lives? I'll tell you what, this is exactly what things like pornography and hookup culture do. They turn people who need to be loved into objects to fulfill our own lust. And this doesn't just happen in a sexual way, does it? We do this in our relationships. Every time we try and change our significant other or turn them into our ideal version of a partner, rather than actually learning about them and learning how we can love them for all the unique ways that God made them. This happens at work. Every time we lose sight of people for the sake of productivity. Every time we start to view those human beings that you work with or who work for you, when they start to become dispensable, when they start to become stepping stones on the way to your next promotion, or when they just start to be items on your to-do list, and maybe the reason you treat them like that is because that's how your boss treats you. And it gets passed down, like Jarrett talked about a few weeks ago. You see, this is the danger of when we stop viewing people as people, and more importantly, as children of God, and instead, we start to treat them as pawns. And this tendency in David, you should know, it does not start, and it does not stop with Bathsheba. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came in, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Very chummy, right? Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. So what is David actually trying to do here? He's trying to cover up for his sin. What do you think he's saying when he does the whole bit about like, go down to your house, wash your feet? He's insinuating the exact thing you think he's insinuating. He is trying to manipulate Uriah into going home and sleeping with his wife, Bathsheba, so that when she's pregnant, oh, remember that day that Uriah came home? Yeah, it must have been that day. I wasn't anywhere to be found. But here's what David didn't count on. You see, in this day, it was customary for soldiers to take a vow of celibacy during war. This was a way for them to fully consecrate themselves to the task that God had called them to. And Uriah is a good and faithful soldier. He is one of David's best soldiers, in fact. And so he is not going to break his vow to God or to his men, even at the behest of the king. And so just like we saw earlier with Bathsheba, here is Uriah remaining faithful to his God while David, the man in power, continues to try and manipulate and use others for his own selfish ends. And it doesn't stop here because once you give yourself over to selfishness, once you get caught up in selfishness, it never ends. It only becomes a slippery slope. 
And David tries multiple times, multiple ways to try and trick Uriah to get him to do what he wants him to do, and it doesn't work. And so finally, David resorts to what we'll call another option. In verse 14, skip down. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. And again, because David is the king and he gets whatever he wants, this is exactly what happens. Uriah is purposefully killed and David takes Bathsheba as his own wife. So I just want you to do a mental inventory of this story really quick. David uses everyone in this story. He uses Uriah and Joab and the other soldiers to do his fighting for him. Did you notice how in verse 1 it says, in the spring, when kings are supposed to be off at war? But David is not there because he is using others, nor is he keeping his vow of celibacy, by the way. He's not there. He's using others to do his battling for him. Throughout the story, he's constantly using his messengers to fetch what or whoever he wants. He uses Bathsheba to satiate his own lust. He tries to use Uriah to cover up his own sin. When that doesn't work, he uses Uriah to literally deliver his own death warrant, whereupon he uses Joab and all the other soldiers that died in that needless battle, all so that he could cover up his mistake, all because David got caught up in thinking, me, 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 me. And you know, again, it's really easy for us to just keep beating up on David, But remember what this story is meant to do. What is this story? It's meant to be descriptive of the human condition. And many of us here in this room today, we have been on the receiving end of selfishness like this in relationship. We've been misused. We've felt like people have left our name or our humanity off. Some of us have even been abused emotionally, physically, because of someone else's selfishness that they refuse to deal with. And that is legitimate. And that pain is hard. And that's something to continually, continually bring before God. And I also want to point out that this story is not just meant to be descriptive of other people in relationships. But this story is meant to be descriptive of what we do sometimes. It's describing what you and I have a tendency to do. And again, we probably aren't doing it purposefully. We're not like house of cards out there, you know, just trying to intentionally manipulate other people. But how often in relationships, if we're not careful, do we kind of find ourselves focusing mainly on how other people can meet our needs rather than actually seeking to serve the needs of others, which is ultimately what God calls us to. You know, as I was reflecting on where this pops up in my own life this week as I was preparing this message, I thought about my marriage to Aaron. Right now, a lot of you know, her and I, we're in a season of new parenthood with our daughter. And during this time, because of the circumstances of our lives, Aaron is, sh- is shouldering the majority of the parenting responsibilities right now. That's not how we always intend for it to be, but just because of the circumstances, that's how it is right now. And, and because that is the case, every now and then, if I'm not careful, I can just sort of subtly catch myself slipping into viewing Aaron as nothing more than a babysitter for our daughter. 
Like she becomes a caretaker that I can just, you know, give our daughter to when I'm feeling tired or I have other things to do. Yeah, just give me a break. I am not very proud to admit that to you. And I'm not doing that intentionally. It's actually when I start to be unintentional in our relationship that this starts to creep in. Because if I'm not careful, I can very quickly lose sight of the fact that Aaron is not just a mother or a caretaker. Aaron is also my wife. And even more importantly than that, Aaron is her own person with her own needs. She is a child of God in and of herself. And so God's word, God's challenge for me in preparing this message was, hey, in this season, what would it look like? What would it look like as you recognize that she is shouldering the majority of the parenting responsibilities right now? What would it look like for you, John, to actually sacrificially love her as she is pouring out so much sacrificial love into our daughter? And, and that's just one example, you know, but, but that's the shift. That's the shift I felt God challenging me as I was creating a message to challenge you. God was doing an inside job on me. And that's the shift I feel God calling me to. And so my question for you is, where might God do that for you today? Like, where is God maybe calling you to shift from selfish love in a relationship to more sacrificial love? Is it maybe like me? Is it with a significant other? or a partner, or a spouse? Do, do you have a friend or coworker where you look at the relationship and lately it's felt really one-sided toward you? Or maybe it's with a family member and that's just the way they're wired, they're so giving, they're always giving, always giving, and that's just like the rhythm you've caught into. And, and you can't remember the last time you thought, hey, what could I actually do or give or be for them? Is there maybe a relationship where, where you've gotten caught up in greed of what you can get out of that person? And maybe God's calling you to shift to generosity. What could I give to that person? Maybe at work recently, you take a step back and you're like, I, I think I've gotten caught up in like an inflated sense of importance here because of my new title or because of, you know, all this promotion that I got. What would it might be look like for you to shift to more humble or servant leadership? towards your team or towards the people you work with, whatever it might be. And you should know, there, there's no greater example of this, not necessarily from David, but from someone who came from the house and line of David. There's no greater example of a sacrificial life, sacrificial love than Jesus. Jesus, who in John chapter 15 said, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends, to live sacrificially. This is the same Jesus who, when referring to himself in Mark chapter 10, he said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to sacrifice his life as a ransom for many. This is the same Jesus who the night he was betrayed, he knelt in the garden and he prayed, father, take this cup away from me, but not my will, not what I want, not my own selfish desires, not my will, but your will be done, God. And the cross, the cross was the greatest act of sacrificial love the world has ever seen. And Jesus didn't just die a sacrificial death, he lived a sacrificial life. It's in every single story about him, and he calls you and I to do the same. And so is there a relationship in your life where rather than, again, knowingly or unknowingly, Rather than kind of seeking to use that person, maybe we could flip that phrase a little bit and we could actually seek to be used by God in that person's life. 
So that the next time you leave an interaction with that person, they don't walk away saying, man, I just feel used. You actually walk away saying, thank you, God, I feel used. I'm feeling the joy of being used in this person's life to showcase God's love, to showcase his compassion or his care. I'm I'm feeling the joy of being used in partnering with God to do his transformative good work in the world. It's not a bad thing to be used if you're being used by the creator of the universe. My hope and my prayer for our church is that we would not be a church that uses people, but that we would be a church that is used by God for the good of people. You can live in that day in, day out. And not only that, but when you actually show up as an example of that, imagine how much people will return that. I'm showing up for their good and they're showing up for my good. It's not wrong to have needs. It's not wrong to want things. But when you show up with sacrifice, others are encouraged to do the same. What would it look like if we got this right? I'll tell you what it would look like. Kingdom of God type relationships. That's what we're describing here. And so I'll just ask that question yet again. Where, where is God calling you to shift from that kind of selfish love you've been sitting in to a more sacrificial lens? Who's the person that maybe God has uniquely positioned you to reach with sacrificial love? And right now we're actually all gonna get a chance to do a reflection so that we can get really specific as to what that's gonna look like in your life this week. If you'll look under your seat, if you're in this room or under the seat in front of you, you'll find a card there. It should be attached to a pen. Card kind of looks like this. If you're worshiping with us online, go ahead, grab a, a sticky note, grab a piece of paper, anything to write with so you can take part in this reflection as well. You'll see on the card here, uh, It has two just like really simple, short prompts for you. The first, at the top, it says, this week, I will show love to blank. This is your opportunity to name the person who you feel God is calling you to intentionally show love to over this week. Maybe it's someone you've started to drift into selfishness with. Maybe it's someone who actually really makes you mad. I don't know. So you're going to name that person right there, whoever that might be. And then underneath, it says, I will love them sacrificially by, and then there's a much larger space because this is where you're going to write how you are going to intentionally do that. Knowing yourself, maybe knowing them and who they are, what they might need, how they best receive love. You're going to get real specific. How can you love that person sacrificially? How can you show up for them in a moment where they might need it? And I want to really, we're going to carve out some legitimate time for this. And so I just want to encourage you to really let this be a prayerful moment between you and God. Like really ask God to lead your heart towards a person in your life. And then all you're going to do is you're going to take this card with you when you leave and you're going to put it in your car. You're going to put it on your mirror. You're going to put it at your desk. You're going to put it somewhere where you're going to see it so that you can be reminded, so that you can hold yourself accountable, so that you can actually live this out. I just want to cast a little vision for you. There are hundreds of people in our city and in your families this week that are going to receive the blessing of sacrificial love, and they have no idea. And you get to be a part of that. You get to be a part, just by carving out a few minutes right now and praying with God, you get to be a part of a movement of Jesus-type love 
all throughout the network of Soul City Church in our city and around the world. That is so cool. That's what happens when the church is the church. And so like I said, we're gonna carve out a little bit of time right now. Julian's gonna sing a little song. And then Fabi and the worship team is gonna come up and we're gonna finish our time by worshiping together. But this is your time between you and God to fill this out so that you can live this out.